Hey, this is Paul with realestateaudios.com, where we bring you the inside of what's working in real estate investing today from real world investors in the trenches right now. And like many of you, I've been there, I've lost money and deals in real estate, frustrated as hell, all while still having a family with kids and a W 2 job to manage. So that's why I created this podcast to help you find out what's actually working today and move you forward towards success. All right, so today's interview is with pro property manager Matt Tandy. Matt's sole focus since 2009 has been property management. He's helped build one of the largest property management companies in the nation called North Point Asset Management, which right now it's serving about 3,500 properties. Now he's building his very own company, a property management company called Formatica, whose sole focus is servicing his landlord clients for the long run. In this interview, he's going to lay out some basics and advanced material for landlords and anyone interested in property management. He also covers advice on how to deal with scams, tips on choosing to raise or not raise the rents, a detailed checklist for operating expenses, tips on raising rents, what vacancy decontrol is, and a bunch more. And if you're a busy investor looking to gain some forward momentum, you might want to check out my site at realestateaudios.com slash podcast, where you can get some articles, interviews, and transcripts. And more importantly, for your busy life, you can get my daily tips on RA marketing, sales, mindset, and on being an entrepreneur while living a busy life, because I've been there. So you want to head over to realestateaudios.com slash podcast to get those free gifts. All right, let's get to the interview. How did you get started in property management? So I got started in property management in two different phases. The first phase was around 07, 08. My wife and I bought our first home, which had a basement apartment. We'd actually been renters in this home on the main floor and then bought it from the owner so we could rent it out ourselves. And so that was my first experience being a landlord and managing property. I self-managed. Made a lot of mistakes and got fortunate that I was renting to primarily students who had no clue about their rights. Then in 2009, buddy of a buddy was starting a management firm in Salt Lake City. I lived in Utah County at the time, just south of Salt Lake County. We got in touch with each other and we went into that together. He started and then three days later I was there. He took off to uh, some sort of Harvard Rich Kids Summer Yale program. Harvard, Yale, something like that. And I ran the company and built most of it up Cool uh, for the first period. You mentioned students. Do you recommend renting out to students? It depends. Each university has different rules. So for instance, if it's a university that requires the houses to be entered into a special program for the students to live. So for instance, some universities may say if they're a freshman or a sophomore, they must live on campus or in university-approved housing, and that housing has to go through an approval process, kind of like trying to get into a Section 8 program. And some of those requirements can be very onerous, and they require you to have certain beds, certain desks, certain lights, certain all sorts of things, and the returns aren't that great when you start working on all the different costs, and tenants tend to do a lot more damage. So generally, no, but if you are renting to students in a group all on a single lease instead of by the bed or by the room, that can give you a little more security and a few more benefits. Okay, great. And so you're an entrepreneur for, since 07. Do you, do you have a business before that? 
before then, I had worked doing tech support for Dell's uh, business clients and high-end systems. Mm. And then before that, I used to be a stockbroker and financial advisor licensed in Texas uh, practicing. And today, how many employees do you have? I have nine, not counting our maintenance people and stuff like that. Okay. And how many states do you operate in? Two currently. Two? California and, and what else? Colorado. Okay. Have you experienced anything outside of those two states? Yeah. So with my first company, before I sold my partners in 2015, we had built that up to 14 offices in 11 states. So California, Utah, Colorado, two offices in Arizona, North Carolina, Texas, Illinois, Kansas, Missouri. I'm sure I'm missing some of this in there. But <laughs> I think, you get the yeah, idea. 14 is a lot. Yeah, 14 is a lot. Okay. Uh, I'm going to get straight to the nitty gritty of, of these questions. So are, are you an investor currently today, a buy and hold investor? No, I sold all of my properties to invest it in Formatic when I started it. But probably in the next six months, I'll probably start going heavy back into it. Right now, what we do is, as part of building the Formatic brand and working primarily with investors, is that when we find a good deal and we get a lot of wholesalers and, of course, current clients want to sell something, rather than snap it up for ourselves, we try to sell it to one of our existing clients or potential clients who've expressed interest. That allows us to, A, we, we get a commission or some sort of finder's fee, so we make money that way. And then also we get the management, which is really the long game for me. So whether I'm managing the rental and making a few bucks or own it, it's not a substantial difference in my book. Yeah. And I think that's a phenomenal business plan, taking care of your client that way. How, how do you analyze um, these properties? The long I, question, uh, long answer. Exceptionally thoroughly. That, that's how I do it. The reality is, is that most of these things, when you go to these gurus and other people and you go to websites like Bigger Pockets, a lot of the advice is use some sort of rule. Use the 1% rule, the 60-40 or the 50-50 or you know, whatever rule you want. And those are all fine, but it's disturbing to see how many people buy actually based off of just that. So the other part is that you have things, primarily when I look at investing in a property or I advise our clients, which we do every day, we're running analysis, people bring us the properties to run so they know if it's a good deal or not versus whatever the sales agent says. So what happens is we always recommend looking at cash on cash. And that is your true apples to apples comparisons between properties. The only thing you can go further than that is your IRR, your internal rate, rate of return which is a different beast in some regards. But cash on cash is really what matters. And most of the time, how people are told to calculate cash on cash is based purely off of nonsense. It's missing critical elements. So when a lot of these people come to me and they say, Matt, I have this amazing deal. Can you just look at once over? I ran the numbers and the cash on cash is 15%. And I look at it and I get 5%. Or they say, oh, I found a deal, it's 7%, which is great in this market. And I look at it and I say, well, actually, it's a negative 2%. And it's not that it makes these deals bad. It just means that there's details that they're overlooking. And each market has their kind of unique things you have to look for. So the reality is, is that when I analyze property, yeah, I'll use some rules to weed out the outliers. But I believe strongly in going deep into the numbers and getting as accurately as possible. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the year, you're going to be looking in your pocket. You may have been looking at those checks you got every month and thinking I'm making money, 
But when you really look at it out over a period of time, how much your maintenance costs over three years, five years, your capital improvements, did you set the right amounts of money aside for that? Most people end up having significantly less or even a loss. Okay. So following along with that then, do you use rent and operating expenses? How do you calculate that? I mean, we've heard of 40 to 60% range from their average rents. Is that something that uh, the rule of thumb that you use or do you actually get somebody's uh, opinion, send somebody out there to actually get a glance at the property? So we don't need, I've been, I've managed over 4,000 homes. I don't typically need to actually go out there in person to look at anything anymore. But we do do the research online. Sometimes we do need to send someone out in person for some particular details. Although that typically has to do with things like rehabs or you know massive remodels before it can be occupied. And then determining what level of rehab will achieve what level of rents. Other than that, it really comes down to just getting the exacts as far as we can and being conservative as possible in those numbers. So you know, whether it is making sure that you're putting in enough for insurance or taxes. In California, we have to look at Melrose. In states like Texas, you have to look at things such as people always say their property taxes are high, but what people outside the area don't know is that they also have two other taxes that are based on your property value that they don't call property taxes, but are in fact a form of property tax. And that's your school district tax and your municipal utility district or, or mud tax. And together, those can run three to 5% a year. So there's all sorts of factors you have to work into it. And I just have a, a custom spreadsheet, a custom calculations that we created over the years that make sure that everything's covered. Okay. So a guy that's making a 5% cash on cash return, would you consider that a good deal for a client? Because some people would think that's, you know, that's kind of equivalent to bank interest. Well, that's a little better than bank interest, but, right. but you know what I mean? So I'll answer that by also addressing part of the other question I didn't answer, which is the 50-50 or the 40-60 rules. So the reality is, is it is area and property dependent. So if I am looking at 5%, again, if it's 5% based off of what I say, then that's a solid deal. But if it's 5% based off of what someone else says, then it's possible it could be a little lower. Not all the time, but I find most of the time. So when I look at this, one thing to remember is that if I'm looking at 5%, what does 5% mean in dollar values, Paul? So if I'm looking at a little property, I'm thinking, man, I got this sweet deal, this cheap little property out on the outskirts of Kansas City, and I only paid you know, 70000 and it has a 10% cash on cash. It's just a fantastic deal. Well, that's typically going to be calculated based off of ideal situations. And what really happens is when you go to make repairs – does a toilet cost significantly more for a $350,000 rental versus a $70,000 rental? Does drywall cost much more? Do any of these things cost much more? And there are some differences, but it's not significant. So when I have to replace a toilet on a $350,000 purchase, a single family home, that makes up, let's say my returns on that one were 4%, well, it barely dents my 4%. $2,000 a month in rent, whatever. But if that toilet was on my $750 a month rent property and my returns on that, my 5% is equal to really about $30 or I'm making up the numbers here because we're talking, I'm not pulling out the calculator for anyone listening. But the concept is, is again, that toilet could eat up three to four months of your profit. So really it's a balancing act of saying, well, how much could setbacks set me back? A large dollar setback may only set you back a month or two 
on a expensive rental in an expensive market, but it can set you back a year or two. And the other part here is you have to work in factors such as do your property taxes increase every year? And I'm sitting in California, but experience everywhere. I'll say one of the reasons why California continues to, even with all their weird laws, continues to attract long-term buy and hold investors is because our property taxes are set to the level that they it was when you purchased the property. So that's your basis. Whereas in most of the rest of the country, if not the entire country, I'm not certain on that, but I know most of the country, your property taxes get reevaluated every one to two years. So in California, let's say that you're taking a $200 a month loss on your property every month that you purchase. But in Texas, I, I like to beat up on Texas here because I'm from Texas primarily. In Texas, you are at a $100 a month positive. Well, if they have the same cash on cash, and we'll say 5%, you may think, well, the Texas one makes more sense. Sorry, the other one would be negative cash on cash. But let's say that the purchase price or other factors are equivalent. So what really happens is that over time, your property taxes are going to keep going up in Texas. And that can increase by $1,000, $2,000 a year on some properties even more. So if your rents are going up, the question is, is if your prop taxes go up $1,200 a year, are your rents also going up in that market by $100 a year? And if not, you're not keeping pace. Whereas in a state like California, our expenses don't really go up. We get to pocket that difference. So in five years, 10 years, the California property is so far ahead, you can't even compare them anymore but it does take some initial slow turn. So what is your goal, Paul? What are your targets? What do you want to accomplish? And I love investments all across the country and I advise clients on investments all across the country. It just needs to be sure that you're not basing off of purely something like the cash on cash or the purchase price. Make sure it aligns with your goals and your financial abilities. Okay, and that, so you do advise clients to go out of state. That is a common thing I see in bigger pockets for people who live in Southern California is go out of state. There's no cash flow out here. So what do you tell somebody who's brand new out here in Southern California and wants to buy cash flow properties? So I usually want to ask what the real goal is. Again, it's such a key part. Most of the time when they say they want cash flow properties, they don't actually need cash flow right now. What they really want to do is build a portfolio of properties. So there are cash flow properties. We put clients into cash flow properties every single month in Southern California. Most of the time it comes down to how much money do they have to even invest. And so you may get better returns and long-term returns in Southern California. And I truly believe that in areas such as the area called the Inland Empire, where of course I'm situated, it makes a difference that you can hold on to those, but you still have to have more money. So if you only have 30,000 to invest, well, yeah, you're not going to be able to do it here. So you may have to go outside. One of the factors that I encourage people to consider, though, is when they go outside of the area is what happens as things go south. And are you factoring those costs into your numbers? So even purchasing the property, are you flying out there? Are you driving out there? Are you taking time off work? If something goes wrong, if you hire a property manager, which you always should for anything out of your area, but if you're hiring a property manager, what if that property manager turns out to not be good? Or they're good and then worst case scenario, they die in a fire car wreck on the way to your property and now you don't have a manager. Again, are you taking time off work? Are you flying out there? Are those costs factored in? Basically a trip out there every three months, uh, I'm sorry, three years 
for one reason or another. And if you don't need to use it, great, but you should be budgeting that in. So most people don't, and they find that when adding that in, again, they take a loss. But if you want to find a cash flow property here, I just say look at the edges. I can buy a property out in Yucca Valley, a high growth area, both in terms of rent and in terms of property value as ratios. That area is growing five to 10, 12% a year. And we expect to continue because we have a population push towards it, which just has to do with limits on land. And you can buy great cash flow properties there for $100,000, $150,000. Okay. Talking about California, some of the limits in California, like you mentioned. Let's talk about rent control in California because there's been oh, there's a lot of talk on rent control. So can you clarify to what that means for, uh, for investors today here in California? Yes. So that is a big thing. And it has a, some short-term headaches and long-term potentials for landlords. Again, investing in California, generally your mindset needs to be on the long game, not on the short, let me make $15 cash flow. So the way it works is that California has had rent control for some time, for several decades in various cities and municipalities. Those areas have what are called rent control boards that can adjust the rent, maximum rent increases each year. So they can say this year you can raise it up to 5%, this year you can raise it 1%. That was typically in areas such as Los Angeles and San Francisco. But some time ago, several decades ago, they came out with an act that put the kibosh on that. No new rent control boards could be created. And it also had all sorts of basically phase out options to prevent that from continuing. The voters last year, there's been a push for rent control statewide. The voters in California roundly rejected that last year. But then the California legislature said, tough luck, we're going to make it happen anyways and they created what's called Assembly Bill 1482. Assembly Bill 1482, they technically don't call rent control because this other act prevents you, them enacting rent control. So they made rent control in all but name, and it limits the amount of, it does two things. One is it limits the amount that you can increase rent to 5% plus the regional consumer price index that is tagged to April 1st of the most recent April 1st report. So go from there. Currently right now in our area, that's 2.9%. That means you can raise the rent 7.9% in any 12-month period. That's a pretty high amount. Now, it does limit in some areas. The reality is, is that in Riverside, the main area and where I was and where I operate, actually that's where my office is in the Inland Empire, it, there were properties that we managed that a duplex had gone up 40% in rent in a three-year period. A house had gone up 50%. I mean, rent, rent growth was fantastic, right? And that just had to do with, it didn't even require industry. It just had to do with LA and San Diego both grow into our area. So you have two of the largest cities in the country both growing into the Inland Empire. So, but generally it had cooled down recently and we were seeing 5 to 10%. Now what happens is you always had these landlords who never raise the rent. They'd say, and listeners may be in this camp, right? Paul, I would never raise the rent of my tenant. They're so good. I haven't touched her for four or five years, but I don't want to scare them and make them leave. And what happens is, first off, that was always a bad idea to begin with because people would think on emotions and not on the numbers. And I'd ask people, Paul, are you you're running a, a charity there? And if so, that's okay. And they'd ask, well, what, I, what did I mean? 
And I say, well, you're $500 on the market. That is a significant amount of money, right? That, that's uh, $6,000 a year. Is that tenant and your niceness to them, is that worth $6,000 a year? Do you, that you're just like, that's how much that's worth? <laughs> and most people would step back and say, oh, no. Oh, no, it's not. I didn't think of it that way. Now, I'm not saying you ra- that people should be raising rent all the way to the max every time uh, that they think they could get away with. If they are a good tenant, price it below the market a little, but still increase it. If they're still saving $100 less than everybody else in, in a market like Southern California, it's still a great deal, especially when you factor in costs of, of moving and the headaches. So they're not going to leave you, and you're still giving them a good deal. But for rent control now, all these landlords who weren't raising their rent because they want to be nice, one of the features of, of Assembly Bill 1482 is that you don't get to bank unused rent raises. So if you don't use it, you lose it. So now these landlords are going to be raising the rent every year. And what are they going to raise it to? Are, Paul, would a landlord want to raise it below? Or are they going to say, well, I only get one shot at this each year? No, they're going to raise it to the maximum. And so we expect that rents universally, instead of, you know, this person is up here and this person is down there, now universally they're all going to be to the max. And that's going to make a big impact on returns and in long-term viability for rentals. Hey, real quick, here's something else for you. If you're living a busy life and you're looking for more marketing mindset, REI advice to move you forward and gain some actual traction in your real estate venture, Head on over to realestateaudios.com slash podcasts for some free gifts and my daily email tips to boost your focus. Again, that's realestateaudios.com slash podcast. You know, that reminds me of a strategy that people use here and where you lower the rent, you lower the rent $100 below market value, but it's a $100 incentive, meaning you tell your tenant, hey, if you pay on time, you know, you get this hundred dollars or off your off your bill. But if you don't pay on time, you know, we gotta add that hundred dollars back to your rent. Is is that something that's legal here in California? Do you do you advise that? I typically would not advise something like that. In several states that is illegal and has been for several years. There are ways you can kind of work around it. So you're creating a workaround to a workaround, it starts getting kind of messy. What happens is that first you have to advertise it at the full rent. Uh, that's under truth in advertising. So if let's say rent is fifteen hundred, but really they're going to pay fourteen hundred if they pay on time, then you still have to advertise it for fifteen hundred. And that means that if you think you're going to get around the rent control, so one thing there's another part to rent control uh, called vacancy D control that did not pass as part of this package. Vacancy D control says you can't even raise the rent beyond that a certain limit when it goes vacant. However, that didn't pass. So currently in California, you can adjust it to whatever you want. So some people have been talking about raising the rent much, much higher than the market could bear. And let's say for a 1500 rental, putting at 1900 and then giving $300 or $400 off or some sort of stair step. And that way they have a starting basis of 1900 to base their 7.9% increase. But what happens is, is that you'd have to legally advertise it at $1,900 rent. That's what you have to put into all the fills that say how much is rent. And if you price your home $400 over the market, well, we use search engines, not newspapers these days. So people in the $1,500 market aren't even typing $1,900 into that property. So you're already missing out on the vast majority. And anyone who does click on it, who are the people who are willing to pay so far over the market? It's the desperate. 
it's the people who probably aren't going to pay it anyways. So we always encourage to price properly from the beginning and then treat your tenants right and just raise rent as you go along. Deductions, again, you can do them. It's just how you market it and your basis uh, is going to be affected accordingly. And you can't add to the rent bill for, say, fixing uh, fixing some maintenance. I, I, I've heard of that. It's, I mean, it sounds pretty legal, though. I mean, like if, I have to, if they call me and I have to come out to fix uh, some plumbing and it's going to cost me $500 and I add $100 to the rent bill. So residential versus commercial. On a commercial lease, it could be something like a triple net where the tenant is responsible for all the maintenance. However, in residential, typically, most municipalities and most states are going to say, no, you can't do that. It's a pretty much a you break it, you fix it policy. If the tenant breaks it, absolutely. Bill them for every penny. I don't mess around with that. But if the tenant didn't break it, if the, if the stove goes out or heaven forbid the heat goes out, uh, or I'm sorry, the uh, heat in one of our mountain communities, if the AC goes out in the middle of the summer when it's 130, you can't wait for the tenant to do it. You still have requirements as a landlord to fix it. Now you think I'll just bill that back to the tenant, but most municipalities and judges will say, no, that should be, that's included as a part of standard parts of the home. And the other part is really just comes down to the judge you get if it ever came up. Most people aren't going to have a problem because most tenants aren't ever going to argue about it. But is it legal? I'd say that there's, I've talked to several attorneys in this field who've seen those fail miserably in court and the landlord ends up paying out through the nose. So do you really want that? And then the other part is, do you want the bad publicity? If Maybe if you have one, it's not a big deal. But if you have a big portfolio and with the rise of these tenant unions, do you really want them going to reporting you to the news stations and everyone else as being a slumlord? And the answer is no, it's just not worth it. Uh, and the other part I'd say is it's stupid. It's stupid because you must want to destroy your property. If a tenant ever has a time where money's tight and they see a dripping faucet and they think, oh yeah, I gotta fix that. Oh, that's gonna be mine, it's not a big thing. Most of the time they're just gonna leave that sucker until it's big enough to really get on their mind and they think that you're gonna to have to pay for some of it. Now it's damaged and as a landlord you may say, oh, but I'll have to charge the, I'll charge the tenant for those damages, sure. But are you gonna squeeze blood from a turnip or water from a stone? Of course not. So it's just not wise. As a landlord you want to know immediately when there's any problem of any size, that way you can determine who caused it and you can determine who gets billed. Okay, and mentioned evictions or i mean the pro this would lead into evictions but evictions are they pain in california to deal with no not really people complain about it but i don't see it being much different than most other states there are some municipalities again uh, san francisco has some of their own unique laws and rules around that that can make it a pain and so really one thing to keep in mind when people talk about the pains in california in investing, what's really happening is that California cities have a great amount of leeway in their laws, whereas some other states have passed laws that prevent municipalities from getting too customized. So most of the horror stories you hear are really tied to certain areas such as the San Francisco Bay Area or the city of LA. And as long as you stay out of those certain markets, you're not really gonna encounter those. An average eviction here, now it's nowhere near as good as say Nevada. Nevada's amazing, but <laughs> I, I'd put it on par with, roughly with about Texas uh, for most part, or Colorado or Utah in the sense that 
from start to finish, it takes six to eight weeks to have before you have a constable out there with keys in hand. It can take a little longer sometimes depending on how backed up people are, but it's really not that hard as long as you have everything properly documented. An eviction is the eviction. Okay. Okay. And then, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people that fear being a landlord, a fear of buying rentals just because of the hassle. Is it really a big deal being a landlord? I mean, is there a hassle for people out here? Um, it's just, it's, I hear that a lot. People are afraid of dealing with the hassle of being a landlord, dealing with tenants and all that. So can you shine some light? Is it really a hassle of being a landlord? Absolutely. And I say that with <laughs> full and complete bias as a property manager. Here's the thing, Paul, 10 years ago, I used to tell clients that all the time that, hey, if you're new to being a landlord and you are within a reasonable driving distance, 30, 60 minutes uh, in average traffic to the property, then it doesn't hurt to self-manage. There are some risks associated with it, but I'd say, hey, give it a go for three months, six months if you really want to maybe a year, and then get a manager so that you can focus more on buying new properties. But that first six months a year will give you some valuable insight into some of the headaches that help you select a good manager. Unfortunately, now in states like California, Washington, Oregon, New York, and much of the Midwest is turning this way too, bit by bit, and is that every place is becoming a tenant rights state. And a tenant rights state basically means that everything's in favor of the tenant. And it can be navigated. And things like evictions aren't a problem as long as you know what you're doing. If you don't know what you're doing, if you mess up on the rent control, if you mess up on the security deposit, if you mess up on any of those things, the laws are so much longer every year that your risks are substantially higher if you're not handling it right. But with a property manager, the property manager has insurance for that. And to give you an idea of how much these laws are affecting us, most property managers in California, our insurances have gone up 30 to 50% in just the last year alone to be able to manage properties because of the risks associated are ever increasing. So I'd say, why take that risk yourself? Hire a manager, and then you don't have to become a legal expert. And by the way, that's where property managers in general in the industry where we see ourselves and in the industry going. It's no longer someone who kind of is a lackey who does what you say. Instead, you're looking for a manager who is a legal expert in the field. They're not attorneys, but they have the systems in place to protect you and to make sure everything runs a specific way. It means there's less that they're gonna, of them doing what you want them to do, but more than making sure your property is cared for, headache-free, and you can sit back and collect your rent. Awesome. Okay. And this is more of a – I think this is a preventative question. This is somebody from, uh, somebody from my list. And by the way, Matt, I am going to edit anything out. All that will be edited out my little daughter <laughs> coming in here and, That's and okay. speaking in the mic. But um, as long as it's stereo, I can, I can edit that very easily. Okay, so I think this is a preventative question. Seems kind of strange, but <laughs> he asked, if you were a renter, knowing everything you know, what would be your advice to squat in an apartment or house for the longest time possible to get free rent or keep from having to pay your mortgage. So how would you turn the tenant and ring laws in your favor? If I wanted to be a squatter, how would I do it? Yeah. That would be unethical for me to answer. <laughs> okay. Okay. You can put that in there. <laughs> I would assume it's pretty easy in some places then. You know, no. Most of the time squatters are just targeting specific situations. Again, I have 
as a manager, I have special insurances and coverages to help in certain situations, not all. There's also learning the right phrases and building relationships with the local law enforcement is a key part. So for instance, if you call someone, so I will advise the landlords here. If you have someone who takes up residency or attempts to take up residency in your home and you tell the police you have a squatter, well, a squatter is actually a very specific legal term and squatters have rights. That just means they're an unauthorized occupant, but they are a resident. And so then you may have to go through an entire eviction process with them. Instead, if you can find the problem quickly before they move a bunch of stuff in, then typically the way you do is you say, and I have a script, I don't have it here that we use that I put together several years ago. Uh, but in California, you would say things like, actually civil code this and civil code that, officers, I am reporting there's active trespassing and possible active damages occurring on my property because you assume that they had to break the lock or do something else to get in and you don't know what damage they're causing. So an active trespasser has no rights. And so you just want to always make sure you're using the right terms. And then you want to make sure you have all your documentation with you when you meet the police out there because they will make you meet them out there and Sometimes they're right away and sometimes they wait for five hours. And so make sure you have a copy of your title. Make sure you have a copy of your original advertisement. Make sure you have a copy of this and that. And so you can show, hey, in case they come to the door, the, the trespasser comes up with a fake lease, which some of them do have, you can be like, look, that's not my name. That's my numbers. That's not nothing. This is all a lie. You can see they don't have furniture. They have nothing. These are trespassers. Arrest them. Most of the time, it's just going to be a curb arrest, you know, arrest and release. And they may go right back in there, but at that point, it's documented. And at that, and if they do go back in, they get arrested typically and taken down to uh, the local jail. Is that something you're seeing a lot, people with fake leases? You know, we used to see a lot more of it a couple of years ago. Not as much anymore. The bigger problem right now is there's a lot of throughout the country, and I interact with managers throughout the country in some of my roles what we're seeing a lot more of are scams operated by people from the Caribbean or something like that. And they'll do things such as say the market, your home, whether it's vacant or not, sometimes they'll just put it on Craigslist. Maybe the rent's 2000, but they'll put it on for 1100. They'll come up with a story about how they just purchased the home distressed from you, Paul, or if you were the manager, they'll say, Oh yeah, I fired that guy. Don't talk to him at all. Some of these people even have local people, criminal ties to local criminal gangs where they'll go in and at night they'll change the locks or change out the, the handles, all sorts of things. They'll give a key to the new people, to these people that are renting out. They have all these stories. Oh, I had to leave on the su- all of a sudden. I'm looking for a good Christian family who's just going to take care of it. That's why I'm renting it for less. I just don't want to be vacant. And so that's been on the rise. It's just something to keep an eye out for and be able to address quickly. So we do have processes such as every day, we check Craigslist to see uh, if our properties have been illegally posted and every day we find some. All right, cool. And speaking of that, of advertising, how do you guys go about advertising property? So most properties are done through, most property managers and most landlords are going to be using a syndication service. That's where you put it in one place and it markets to all these others. Very few people are going to market on just one place anymore. There's just no need to. 
the when you syndicate it gets out to usually 10 to 15 primary sites and then you have these other little tiny sites that we call scrapers they're going to scrape the listings from there it gets out on another 60 70 sites and sometimes when advertising people say i post your property on 80 different sites but in reality that's not quite how it works but in a way it gets out there there are a few challenges to that recently. Zillow in some markets was a primary source of leads, Zillow, Trulia, and Hotpads, uh, all of which are owned by the Zillow group. But they just, as they've been wrapping up the takeover of a lot of the real estate sales industry, they've recently started moving into property management side of things. And now they are charging landlords and property managers, some, depending on the city and state, 2 to $5 per day per listing that you advertise on their group. And in some areas, they make up 9% of the leads. So that is a lot. It's not in all the states. They're doing a slow rollout so that there's not a big nationwide fight against them. And they're kind of smart in that. They rolled it out in Florida, Colorado. It's not in California yet, but we expect that in the next year. And it can be a lot. But if you remember back to the newspaper days, they used to charge you a whole lot more than that to place a crappy little ad in the paper. So really, as property managers and as landlords, real estate investors, We've had a pretty sweet run of the free game for the last decade, but that's coming to a close. And I assume that uh, in California, you can get a, a tenant in there pretty quickly. Uh, we average about eight days. Oh, okay. So, the, I mean, that's not that expensive given eight days. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. So what's a typical, what should be a typical vacancy rate? Most of the time when you're planning your investments, the advice is to use 8%. Our vacancy rate is and always has been well below 4%. But you know, if you want to be extra conservative and you don't know the manager you're going to use and things like that, go with 8%. It's just a safe bet. And is vacancy rate part of the operating expenses when somebody's calculating that out? It is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you have your um, – for op operating expenses, can you break that down? I would have to pull up the spreadsheet. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's, uh, how about briefly? I, I can look, it, it's, tell you what, I can quickly look at one of these here and go through a few of them. So, you know, make sure in your costs, you're including, including your purchase costs, your closing costs, origination fees, wholesaler fees if applicable or finders fees. Uh, make sure you're including your initial rehab costs. A lot of people skip that and they add it in somewhere else or forget to add it. That is part of your total purchase, even though it may be spent over the course of two or three months. Make sure you put in all your income sources. So that's things like rent, water, sewage, trash, meaning if you're building that back to the tenant, that is an income source. And don't say, well, it works out on the wash. Always document it. Parking spaces, storage units, laundry facilities if applicable, so make sure you have all that. Expenses, yeah, some of the big things people forget are vacancy or they miscalculate property management. They get this horrible advice that, oh, just calculate 5% or $50 or something like that. Well, look, if you plan on doing everything yourself and having a manager who doesn't care about your property, absolutely. There are cut rate management companies that will do nothing other than collect the rent and maybe if you're lucky, send you a reliable statement. And I'm not saying those companies don't have their place, especially if you're a landlord who lives next door to the property, maybe that's all you need. But if you're looking for someone who is really a, a true property manager in my book, is someone who acts as a legal and social buffer between you and your tenant. They know the laws, 
they're not going to get worked up when a tenant threatens them, uh, whether it's physically or legally or other things like that. They know when a tenant is trying to weasel more money or, or other things out. And also, that manager, as, parting, as a legal and social buffer between the tenant, is going to be able to tell you no as a landlord. And that's a key part. If they just tell you what you want to hear, they're probably not looking out for your best interest. So with that said, you'll hear things like, well, plan 5% or 7% or 10%, but there's other fees that may depend on what you're looking for. So you have your management fee, which can vary between typically 6% and 10%, depending on the market and the house. It, you have a lease fee, which almost everybody forgets. Lease fees are substantial. In places like Phoenix, a lease fee is often a couple hundred dollars, if that. In a place like anywhere east of the Mississippi and even a little bit west of it, a lease fee is a full month of rent. So are you working that into your calculations? Because if not, that's massive. That's a huge difference. If you missed out on that lease fee in, in say, Georgia, and you planned on 400 because that's what you're used to in your town, uh, but it turns out that on your $1,500 rental, you had to pay a $1,500 lease fee. Well, that's $1,100 difference in losses on that, and that could easily wipe out all of your gains. So work that out. Uh, and then if you have things such as on-site managers, if it's a multiplex, you need to work that in, and W-2 costs and everything associated with that. You can't actually do rent credits. Usually with the IRS, they have some laws against that. They've been cracking down on it. Vacancy, make sure you're planning your vacancy plan a regular amount for maintenance, capital expenditures. And that means that even though you're not spending that money every month, you should be setting aside a certain amount based off of the size and quality of the home every single month and putting it in a completely separate bank account so that you're not tempted to spend it. And that way, when something does happen, such as you need to rehab the unit a little after the tenant leaves and security deposit maybe doesn't cover all of it, or your AC goes out and you have to get a new compressor or a whole new unit, whatever the case may be, that may only happen every four or five years, but that can eat up all that money. So make sure you're setting that money aside every time. Again, depending on the property, landscaping, pest control, pool service, insurance costs, property taxes, and again, make sure you know if your property taxes go up every year or not. Uh, special assessments, you should be setting aside a reserve, I typically say equal to one month is a good idea outside of your regular maintenance things. Uh, and then utilities, of course, all the different utilities. Now, a single-family home, the tenant's normally going to pay for that. If you have a shared utility situation, such as a duplex or, some, or quadplex where it's one meter, then one little money-making area to advise is that you start charging the tenants for their own utilities. Figure it out. Go through the effort. Charge them a flat fee or charge them uh, some other method based off of ratios, it's called rubs, ratio utility billing. So use rubs is really what we recommend. And then you get all the money back so that it can increase your profit margins on those without actually raising the rent because that's not rent, that's utilities. So make sure that's all included. And there's a whole bunch of others, but that's the concept. Yeah, so you go in depth <laughs> compared to some of the, I mean, I've just heard like the general four maintenance, capital expenditures, vacancy, management, and that's it. And you have your range. So you go in, in, in depth with that. So speaking of bank account, then is the renter's deposit to be held in a separate bank account as well? Depends on the state. California does not actually require a landlord to hold in a separate bank account. Now, most of your property managers are going to require it. 
And that's because there's a gray area in California law that where the manager is actually accountable for that money in many ways, even if they don't hold it. And so if we're going to be accountable for it and have, it's going to affect our costs and liabilities, then we are absolutely going to hold it. Uh, there are some things where some other gray areas are, well, what if the landlord was self-managing and doesn't have it, which of course they should always have it, or they claim they want to hold it, which usually means they don't have it and they spent it illegally. In those cases, maybe we'll let it slide, but we'll have them sign certain release of liability forms. But yeah, typically it's going to be held by your real estate agent, your broker uh, who's managing the property. But you don't have to have it in a separate bank account in California, unlike most other states. However, you do have to have a proper accounting and you must be able to show that no part of it was ever spent except for where legally authorized. Okay. Okay. Very good. All right. Well, we've, we've talked a lot about management, man. That's fantastic, fantastic information right there. What about your, your company? Formatica was started in 07, right? No, no. My, my first rental was in 07. Oh, uh, okay. 2009 started, I should say, I helped start North Point Asset Management. Fantastic company run by great people then all the way through and still now. I sold my part of that in 2015. Want to focus on more of a customer experience company and I started Formatic uh, a month or two after in 2015. Okay. So we're now at about four years. Four years. And you're one of the, one of the biggest in Southern California? I think no, you mentioned that. No, no, oh, okay, okay. North Point had, I had grown to one of the biggest in the country. Then, so we had 3,500 homes under management uh, when I sold my part. So North uh, Formatic is taking a different approach. Right now, we manage about 350 properties. Our goal is to become one of the largest in the country, if not the, uh, on the globe. Uh, so our goal is about 100 offices in the next 10 years, uh, 10,000 units under management. What was your, some of your struggles when starting Formatic? Many. <laughs> Many. <laughs> so the big struggle starting out for any company that sells a good or service is convincing people that working with a small timer matters. Paul, it didn't matter that I had experience in more states than almost any other person in the industry. It didn't matter that I'd overseen and brought in hundreds of millions of dollars of real estate. None of that mattered when trying to get a plumber to give you a good price on the one property you're managing on day two. So, because all of that is great, but what about now? And so starting out in every market you go into is always a challenge. And conveying that to landlords, uh, because I know this is primarily landlords who are, who are gonna be listening, Landlords face that same problem when they go outside of their zone, outside their area. They have to set up whole new teams, find a new real estate agent, find a new property manager, which, by the way, my personal opinion should be one and the same. Find a new anything. If you're not using a property manager, you also have to find your new vendors, find your new insurance, find anything that you need. And then you have to hope that each piece works together, but most of the time it doesn't. Most of the time you're going to take a while to find the right plumber the right electrician, who's going to be reliable, go out there quickly, treat you right, not overcharge you, uh, stand by their work. Find a real estate agent who's not giving you bogus numbers on what the rents could be or the returns. And so that means every area you're starting fresh. And that's the challenges I face and that's the challenge any landlord is gonna face in any new market. Okay, awesome. All right, Matt, where can people find you? Formaticpm.com, F-O-R-M-A. 
A-T-I-C-P-M, like propertymanagement.com. So it comes from combining the words formula and automatic, formatic. And I'll put a link in the transcripts because there'll be some transcripts with this as well. So, all right, Matt, take care. I'll see you in the next one. See you, Paul. Take care. I appreciate it. All right, that's a wrap. But before you go, let me add here that whether you're in the buy and hold strategy, wholesaling, flipping, mobile homes, land, or whatever it is, after I ventured in a lot of these niches here, while working a W-2 job and building some cash flow streams, I've learned that focus and gaining some actual traction for a long-lasting business is the biggest problem for busy investors. So that's why I have for you daily email tips that can boost not just your lead generation, but your focus in your venture. So head on over to realestateaudios.com slash podcast for those free gifts, a free newsletter, and the mentioned resources in these interviews. Thanks for listening and keep moving forward every day.